Scooby-Doo, where are you? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. Scooby-Doo, where are you? And it would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. Gang, we've just been handed our next mystery. Blasted meddling kids. <laughs> it takes about two and a half years to develop a Scooby-Doo museum exhibit and apparently about seven months to put together the podcast episode talking about it. As many of you listening might know, I had the chance to meet a bunch of other Scooby-Doo fans when we all went to see the Scooby-Doo Mansion Mayhem exhibit at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. And if you'd like to hear about our personal experiences at the exhibit, make sure to go check out episode 32 of the Scooby panel, where you can hear about us all meeting in person for the first time and what our thoughts were about the exhibit. But for this episode of The Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, I had the chance to chat with Sarah Myers, Director of Traveling Exhibits, and Stephanie Edelman, the exhibit developer, from the Children's Museum of Indianapolis about the creation of the Scooby-Doo Mansion Mayhem exhibit. Since I'm incredibly behind, the exhibit has now closed at the museum in Indianapolis, but it will be starting the touring portion soon, so make sure to check it out if it's coming anywhere near you. The structure for this episode will be starting with the interview with Sarah, then we'll head into the interview with Stephanie to really dive into the development process of the exhibit. Then at the end, there might be an additional question where we'll hear from both perspectives. So let's get into it. So just as a quick icebreaker, I like to start off with three Scooby-Doo-related trivia questions. Oh, I'm not going to get any of them right. <laughs> I don't think they're that hard, but we'll see. Question one. In 1969, what month did Scooby-Doo Where Are You premiere? And I'll give you options. Okay. A, September. B, October. Or C, November. It's going to be September. That's correct. Because the reason I know this is because when they had their big celebration back in 20, whatever that was, Gwen Stefani was like going to be at the head of it because it was her birthday month. So <laughs> random fact. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, question two, what year did Scrappy-Doo make his first appearance? I should have read the label in the exhibit. Um, 19... That puzzle was 1978. 1968. 1979. 1979 was what I was going to say because of the puzzle is 1979 in the exhibit. But yeah, I messed up. And the last question for the trivia portion is, uh, can you name two Scooby-Doo episode titles? What the heck's going on? And then um, what a night for a night. Perfect. To start off the general questions, uh, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you grow up a fan? I grew up with a brother. <laughs> so um, I knew of Scooby-Doo. I watched Scooby-Doo. I wasn't a fan 
Um, because my brother was a fan and you know, you can't like the same things your brother likes growing up. Um, so, um, I definitely watched it. I enjoyed it. Um, but I was not a designated fan, um, because that wasn't okay to match my brother. (laughs) Do you have any favorite personal memories related to Scooby-Doo? Um, well, right now, I would say the exhibition. It's been an amazing two and a half years working with Warner Brothers and our team to really bring the show to life. And um, I, it's definitely going to stick with me for a while. Why do you think that Scooby-Doo has lasted the test of time and still continues to be popular? Well, the, the brand is just so multi-generational. It's been on forever. So it, people can talk to their children about it. They can watch it with their children and have those learning moments together and those um, memories that are made together as a unit. And I think that kind of just keeps that tradition carrying on um, through family members. How did the idea come to put together the Scooby-Doo Mansion Mayhem exhibit? So this all started many, many years ago um, when we approached Warner Brothers about doing a partnership. And with that partnership, we decided that we wanted to do two of their bigger brands. Um, And we started with DC Superheroes and the follow-up to that exhibit pending that DC superheroes did well would be Scooby-Doo. Um, so DC superheroes did an amazing job on the road, and now we have Scooby-Doo um, based on that continued partnership. And how long of a process was it to put together from initial idea to grand opening? So um, once we got to the green light to open the Scooby-Doo exhibition, we started at the end of 2019, and then um, it was about two and a half years. And so what all went into that process? Um, Stephanie can speak a little bit later um, to the development process, but it's it's a it's a very complex, layered process. So um, we start with brainstorming of what the exhibit's going to um, contain. Then we do a concept, um, and then we go, go farther detail into schematics and kind of refining what everything's going to do, what you're going to what you're going to see, what you're going to learn, what you're going to do in the exhibition, and then we um, make that into a, a 3D design, and then we build it. And what can Scooby Doo fans expect to see if they come to check out the exhibit? Well, hopefully they feel like they're immersed into a Scooby-Doo episode. Um, so the, uh, the plot behind the show, um, the show behind the exhibit is that you have been called upon behind the mystery inking to help solve the mystery of the jewel thieving ghost. Um, so you're entering the spooky mansion um, and going through the, the mansion with the different um, mystery ink gang uh, members to look for clues, analyze them, and then figure out who the villain is and where the missing jewels are. And roughly how big is the exhibit? It's um, the traveling portion is 2,500 square feet. Um, we expanded it here um, by augmenting with the Mr. Machine um, from the movie from Warner Brothers Archives and some other um, elements such as Scrappy Doo's um, case, um, and then some, also some storyboards, um, story pitch boards from the original show. And is the exhibit geared toward a specific age range of Scooby Doo fan, or was it designed to be enjoyed by all ages? So the target age for the exhibit is five to eight, which is kind of the core of the Scooby-Doo brand. However, we know everyone loves Scooby-Doo, so we made it for the full family. Um, So there's Easter eggs throughout that different age groups can um, stumble upon and um, follow. Um, There's also some um, objects, some like memorabilia from over the years that um, kind of take you back to those um, older years of Scooby-Doo that um, the older audience can enjoy as well. And you mentioned the traveling portion. Is this the first place that it's premiered? Yeah, so we will debut the exhibit. Well, I guess we did debut the exhibit. And then it'll tour for five years after our run around North America. Do you have any details as to where that might be? Or is that top secret? I do have some details. They're not quite, you know, inked in yet. But I can tell you that Michigan is probably going to be seeing the exhibit very, very soon. Um, Texas as well. Um, Ohio and maybe New York.
And what is the difference between walking through the exhibit on its own and experiencing some of the special events like the case of the Pilford Pumpkins daily program? So the um, case of the Pilford Pumpkins, um, it's kind of an add-on program for the experience. So it's, it's not technically tied into the full exhibit experience. It just um, but it's in a supplemental program that you can do. Um, so the, the storyline kind of like feeds off of the main exhibit for the um, Pilford Pumpkins with the family members, um, but it does not take away from the actual experience within the gallery. The trap experience is, so um, the storyline here is that Fred stumbled upon um, the villain's um, workshop and he decided he's going to tinker with because he loves to make traps um, to make a trap for um, to catch the villain. So he has a trap set up, but he needs help testing it. So he made a, a dummy villain um, that you'll see uh, once you're in the exhibit. And then you get to manipulate the different lever- levers and um, cranks and dials um, to actually work the trap. So to start off with some trivia, uh, question one, which voice actor has been part of the franchise and voicing a member of the gang for all 52 years? Frank Welker, because he voices Fred and he's voiced Scooby. Yes. Uh, Question two, which of the following episodes is not an episode set in a museum? A, What a Night for a Night, B, The Spirits of 76, or C, The Tar Monster? Oh, man. I know what a night for a night is set in a museum because that was the first episode and they had the the suit of armor. I'm going to say the spirit of 76. It's the tar monster. Ah, Well, I was close. (laughs) I got one. I I narrowed it down to one. The spirits of 76 is a Scooby-Doo show episode uh, that is set in kind of a, a mimic of the Smithsonian. Okay. And I'd like to go through the general questions as well. So what is your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you grow up as a fan? So I watched a little bit of Scooby-Doo when I was younger. My most vivid memory of Scooby-Doo is watching the live action movies with Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar and Matthew Lillard. And I remember like seeing those in the theater. Um, But that was kind of my, the extent of, what you know my experience with scooby-doo as as a child um but obviously now working on the exhibit i've made lots of scooby-doo memories along the way um, and learned a lot more about about the brand and to go into that a little bit more can you talk about what some of those favorite memories are sure so um when we started working on this project um so i have two kids at home now. When we started working on the project, I only had um, my son who was about two and a half at the time. And then my daughter was born right at the end of 2019. So she was like, you know, really young. But so my son, who's now five, we spent a lot of time, you know, some of the initial things I did to research for this um, exhibition was watching lots of Scooby-Doo episodes, especially the um, like kind of first and second season, uh, original seasons, and then, you know, some of the newer movies and newer shows. So like um, What's New Scooby-Doo and Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. And so 
I watched a lot of those with my son and he started to get really into the story to the point now where like when we go to the library, he's like, let's get a Scooby-Doo book or Let, let's rent the Scoob movie again. So it's been really fun, like making memories with him along the way. And now my daughter's just getting old enough. She's two and a half now where I think she's, you know, starting to... Um, be able to kind of understand what's going on in some of the episodes and and she does you know just love scooby-doo as like being a dog you know she she'll be like oh scooby-doo he's so cute <laughs> have your kids seen the exhibit they have seen the exhibit so um it was really great you know working as an exhibit developer here at the museum and having young kids i kind of sometimes use them as like test subjects or guinea pigs when so when we were building the exhibit um, and it still wasn't all the way complete um, I brought them in one day just to kind of check out the exhibit play with some of the interactives just to kind of get some initial impressions and we you know we have formalized processes for doing that as well Um, we call it prototyping where we bring in visitors to test out different um, ideas and different interactives to see how they're working but it's really fun to be able to do that with my kids and kind of get their initial impressions and talk to them about some of the ideas that I'm having because it's like that direct feedback directly from kids who are going to come in and experience the exhibit and and kind of see what they're being drawn to. So they have seen it. And I think that we're going to come back this weekend or next weekend for them to to see it fully finished out. That sounds fantastic. Um, And how many like prototyping sessions would you have in the length of prepping an exhibit? So um, it varies from exhibit to exhibit, but basically as we're going through the process of figuring out what interactives we want to include, there are some where we might have questions about how it's going to work. Are people going to understand what they have to do? Um, You know, especially if something is like a multi-step process, how are we going to explain that to people so that they, they get it? Because in the exhibit, there's not somebody standing right there next to them, like walking them through an interactive. So for Scooby-Doo, I think there were... um, at least two or three interactives that we prototyped. I know we prototyped the uh, Fred's Trap interactive, and we also prototyped Velma's Clue Analyzer. And I'm trying to think if we did anything with the um, portraits. Oh, the pipe organ. That was the one that we did. Yeah. And so we also uh, prototyped the pipe organ that's in Velma's area. So those were ones where we had some questions about how they were going to work. And so we did some initial tests. Sometimes those are what we call like paper prototypes. So it's something that we're like just kind of putting together, you know, and uh, have questions about. And sometimes our production team actually builds like an early version of what the interactive might look like um, for people to, to play around with. And is that in like a separate room or do they put that up in where the exhibit is going to be? Uh, It depends on timing. Sometimes it's in a separate spot in the museum or even just like out on the ramp around um, the museum core where we can easily say to visitors that are visiting that day, hey, come over and check this out. You know, will you try out something new for an exhibit we're making and, you know, we can get some feedback from you. And then um, sometimes if if it's getting closer to when the exhibit is going to open and we have the space, we'll do it in, in the actual space. So I forgot one that we prototyped, the Ghost Chase Interactive. That one um, we actually were able to do in the space, which was nice because we were starting to put it up, but we had we had we still had some questions that we wanted to kind of see how people were interacting with it. For those early ones, do visitors know what it's for? 
Uh, for the early ones, um, I think for the pipe organ, I'm not sure we had announced the exhibit yet. So I think we had just said this is for an upcoming exhibit like TBD. Um, but then for like Fred's Trap and Velma's Clue Analyzer, um, once the museum has kind of announced the calendar and said, we're bringing, you know, Scooby-Doo next year or whenever it's, you know, it's going to open in June, then we'll let people know like this is for the Scooby-Doo exhibit and you're getting to kind of um, come in and be a part of helping us make it, which is, you know, a nice kind of incentive for people to want to come and try the interactive because they're kind of getting a sneak peek in a sense. And how do you plan and develop an exhibit that gears towards all ages so that parents are also interested and bring the kids? Yeah, so one of the first things we do when we create any exhibit here is we start by creating what we call a big idea and main messages. And this is really um, a statement that we develop about, you know, you know, what is the exhibit and and why should people care about the content of the exhibit, right? Because we could make a really cool Scooby-Doo exhibit, but if people don't see a way to interact or, you know, become a part of the show, you know, why would they why do they want to come visit it? So we start with that that messaging process and that is a lot of brainstorming around, okay, what are the um we you know, we ask questions like what what does make Scooby-Doo a popular brand after 52 years? Why do people love it? What are some of the things that kids can learn from watching Scooby-Doo, like problem solving or making observations or being courageous, standing up to, you know, something that might be a little spooky and, you know, finding support within a team. So we brainstorm around all those kinds of concepts and create this set of messaging. And that is what then drives the development of the content. So um, for Scooby-Doo... We, the main message is that for over 50 years, the members of Mystery Inc. have shown us that through courage, teamwork, and ingenuity, any mystery can be solved. Very true. <laughs> there we go. That's that's what we hope. And that big idea, like, you know, when people visit the exhibit and if they were to walk out and we would say, you know, what do you think that exhibit was about? We hope that they would say something close to what the big idea is, right? So they might say something about teamwork or about um, problem solving, finding, you know, solving a mystery or working together as a team. Um, that's kind of what we would hope they would say when they when they finish their visit. And why do you personally think that Scooby-Doo has lasted this long? Well, I think that part of it is that teamwork aspect, right? They have this team of unique characters and I think people can kind of connect to each one of the characters in a different way or they can see themselves in one of the characters. Um, and that kind of helps create that that connection and that um, that desire to want to come back and see what happens to their story, you know, over and over again. And the fact that they've been able to have so many kind of different versions of the show that really match the um, kind of the culture of the time. So I'm thinking like um, a pup named Scooby-Doo, right? That kind of came out when there were lots of shows about like the baby versions of characters like Muppet Babies and, you know, other shows of, of that kind of genre. And so they, you know, Scooby-Doo was able to create their own kind of version of that and stay current with what was going on in popular culture, which I think drew more people to the brand. And then once they kind of had that brand built up, then like um, Sarah was saying earlier, you know, parents can talk about it with their kids and kids can talk about it with their grandparents and they can have those intergenerational moments for sharing their own memories. And that just, you know, makes it something the whole family can enjoy. And how long of a planning process goes into an exhibit like this before even getting the physical pieces together? Sure. So 
like we mentioned earlier, it was about a two and a half year process. And I would say about the first year and a half of that was all um, concepting and like ideation, right? So that was all where we were figuring out what's the messaging of the exhibit? What are the areas of the exhibit going to be? Where's each character going to come in? What's the mystery we're solving? What's the storyline? How are people going to interact? And so that's a lot of brainstorming and working together as an exhibit team to kind of write up those plans and create um, sketches. So we have um, both 3D and 2D designers that work at the museum that will you know, sketch out the areas and kind of design the look and feel of the exhibit. And so that that whole process, you know, depending on the exhibit that we're making can take various amounts of time. But for this exhibit, it was about about a year and a half. And that kind of culminates in a set of construction drawings, right, that we can give to people to actually build the exhibit. And um, we have both a, an internal team that builds components of the exhibit, especially a lot of the interactive elements that people are going to be um, manipulating. But then we also have you know, external vendors that can also help build some of the structures of the exhibit. And roughly how many people, how many hands goes into building an exhibit like this? Oh my gosh. I'm just trying to think of like the, you know, we have like a core team of probably like 15 people and then we have an extended team that's working on programming and additional experiences like the After Dark event that we're going to be having, which is, you know, another 20 to 30 people and then the actual production team building it and contractors we bring in to paint and do faux finishing could be another 10 to 15 people. So what, that's maybe like 50 to 60 people and then also like our partners at WB so like 60 to 70 total people kind of all coming together to work on a project like this and did you have a lot of freedom in developing it or were you working closely with WB to keep the brand guidelines yeah so we were working really closely with WB along the way having check-ins to make sure that you know we were matching their their kind of style their um how they tell stories but i will say that WB was really wonderful to work with in the sense that um for the exhibit we did draw inspiration from a scooby-doo episode so the episode nowhere to hide which is part of the um, second season of scooby-doo where are you we we use that as inspiration but WB was really open to allowing us um, some creative freedom and like who this supplemental and secondary characters were in the exhibit and some of the different clues and aspects of the mystery to solve. They were great at kind of letting us be creative and in, in taking a story and making it our own. Um, they of course were, you know, with us the whole way, making sure that it aligned with their brand, but it was really fun. It was, I kind of felt at times like I was getting to write a Scooby-Doo episode, which was really cool. <laughs> That is very cool. <laughs> um, so Scooby-Doo has a 52-year-long history with you know numerous different iterations from movies and shows and everything else spanning that time period. How did you decide which aspects of that history to include or feature? That is a great question because it's something that we kind of talked a lot about right during the concept phase. And we really felt like that um, going back to Scooby-Doo's roots, so that like, you you know, traditional animation style that they had um, back in 1969 was just, it really helped draw on that intergenerational aspect. You know, as a museum for children and families, we know that we wanted 
kids to come and enjoy the exhibit, but be able to talk to their parents about it, right? And have their adults be excited to come to the exhibit. So we felt like that was just a natural fit to kind of go with that style of the show. Um, and we, we had also seen that one of the newest kind of um, shows that has come out, uh, Scooby-Doo and Guess Who, you know, they were kind of going back to those roots too in the animation style and how they were portraying the characters. So you know, after kind of consulting with WB, we all felt like that was kind of the best fit was that kind of, you know, really traditional Scooby style um, that could speak to children and families of all ages. And what elements, if any, were built specifically for this exhibit? And how long did it take to build them? So I would say that every single element within the space, apart from the objects that we got on loan from Warner Brothers or that or you know, are from our own collection or that we kind of got um, specifically for the exhibit. So things like little Playmobil toys or lunch boxes, everything else outside of that though was built specifically for this exhibit. Um, so each, you know, each element was kind of created by by our team in uh, coordination with Warner Brothers. And how long did it take to build them? That was kind of like that last year of the process. So the first year and a half was solely like, you know, concept, things on paper, right? And then the second year was the the physical building part where they were building the walls and they were building the interactives and all the structures and finding all the props to help um, bring the space to life and make it really immersive. And once you had all the physical elements, and would that have been like the whole year of putting the exhibit together? Or do you have a set time frame like the space is open now and we have like a month to build everything and put everything or like bring everything in and put it on the walls? Yeah, so a lot of stuff was built um, off site and then was brought to the museum once it was kind of completed. And so those kind of came in waves, you know, we, there's like four main areas of the exhibit. Um, and each area was kind of built um, in progression. So like we have the library music room, like those structures were built and then the hall of portraits and then the kitchen and the villains tinkering workshop. Um, so those came in, um, you know, kind of in waves and we would um, get those from from another um, contracted production team that were building those offsite. And then once those started coming in, um, we were able to start working in the gallery once the exhibit that um, was in there before Scooby-Doo had, had closed. And so um, we actually had an art exhibit in, in that space, and then we had used it for some events um, related to our Dinosphere exhibit. And then once that was done, we were able to start moving the pieces in. And I think that was around maybe April. Yeah, April, when we were starting to bring the pieces up there and put them all in place in their final locations. Do you have somewhere to hold things? Like, do you have a back? We have a huge area in the basement that's, you know, production where they're where they're building. We have, you know, our collections down there. So there's a lot of behind the scenes space that um, oh, the average visitor doesn't get to see. The power just flickered. I think there might be a ghost <laughs> in our interview. <laughs> They know we're talking about Scooby. How apropos. <laughs> <laughs> um, and were there any challenges at all in putting the exhibit together and, you know, getting it to open on time or anything like that? There are always challenges in any exhibit process. I think part of it is, you know, just as being the, the largest children's museum and the amount of exhibits we create, it's all about balancing schedules from one project to the next. So, 
You know, I would say that the last couple of months of putting Scooby together was kind of, you know, fast and furious. And there's always, you know, little things you run into like, oh, this isn't working quite the way we thought it was going to, or it needs some tweaking. But the best part about working here is that we have such a amazing team uh, of problem solvers and of creative thinkers that whenever something comes up, they're really quickly able to be like, okay, this didn't work out, you know, maybe the way we wanted it, like, oh, this magnet isn't quite sticking the way we wanted it to, but we have another idea and we have another way to, to solve that problem or come at it. So um, yes, there's always challenges, but our team really rises to the occasion and, you know, makes it, makes them, you know, kind of interesting challenges and fun challenges, right? And they're not always like bad challenges. And what is the goal of what visitors might learn about Scooby-Doo from visiting the exhibit? Yeah, so I think for especially for that target age range, five to eight, we are really hoping that children um, in that age range and their families are being just like the Mystery Ink Gang. They are making observations, they're interpreting clues, they're making inferences, they are problem solving, and they're doing it together as a team. They're not just doing it on their own, they're working together to put those, you know, to make those observations and to learn about the mystery. So that is kind of what we're hoping people walk away with. It's kind of those scientific thinking and reasoning skills um, that Scooby is really good at, at kind of honing in on. And then also that idea of like courage and teamwork. So there are some spooky elements to Scooby-Doo. And we know that, you know, for some kids that, that could be a little spooky, but having that courage, um, I especially love how Daphne always, ha you know, has courage. She's not afraid of anything. So kind of like imparting that onto, you know, children and families, like you, you can do it together. You can, you know, give each other the courage to seek the source of the mystery and not have to be afraid of the spooky things going on when you, when you're a team. Definitely. Um, and to clarify and elaborate, was it always the goal to have uh, interactive elements in the exhibit? Yeah, so all of the exhibits that we create um, here at the Children's Museum include interactive elements um, because we know that hands-on learning thing, you know, is so important for kids. It's one thing to see and hear about um, a topic or subject matter, but it's a whole other thing to, you know, be active and be doing something that relates to the subject at hand. So we always knew that we were going to have multiple interactive elements within the exhibit and while the exhibit's target age range is five to eight, and so a lot of the exhibit's um, interactives are geared towards that that age group, we do include things for other age groups as well. So like we know that a big part of our audience is preschool families, and so we have an area where you can make Scooby and Shaggy a snack, which is just a lot of pretend play with food items, and that's something that we knew would be a big draw for that audience. And then there are some interactives that are a little trickier and um, they would be great for, you know, somebody that's 10 or up or even, even adults to do, but those younger kids can still do them when they have that supporting adult there next to them, kind of helping them walk, walk through it. Where did the idea come from to split up the interactive elements and the whole exhibit into sections featuring each member of the gang? So that was something that kind of came out of our, our concepting phase, um, Something that's kind of unique about our exhibits at the Children's Museum, and other museums do this too, um, but we really approach our exhibits as free choice learning environments. So what that means is there isn't um, you know, a specific path you have to take through any exhibit. You don't have to start at the beginning and you know walk, walk this way and see these elements in this order. 
we like to have experiences that allow children and families to go where they're interested, right? So they can kind of go off in any direction and you don't have to experience it in a particular order and it's, you know, it's free choice. You get to choose what you're, what you're gonna, going to do. So that that's great, but it can also pose challenges for things like um, the Scooby-Doo exhibit where it is, you know, they're driven by a storyline and in a lot of um, the mysteries, there's like an order of the clues that you need to solve and collect to find the answer to the mystery. So our one of our challenges for this exhibit was finding a way that we could create a free choice experience where when people were interacting with elements, they were getting some kind of payoff or something that was um, that happened at the end of each interactive that felt like a moment where they they've helped, you know, find a clue or contributed to the success of the mystery inking and the mystery. Um, and they could, you know, somebody could go to just one area and do one interactive and they could walk out and they would still have a great experience. Um, but we wanted to make sure there was this layer of, of a storyline where if, if somebody really was interested in finding every clue and figuring out who is the jewel thief, why are they stealing the jewels, what's the motive behind it, you know, what when Fred pulls off the mask, who's going to be underneath the mask? Um, how are they creating their their costume, their illusions? We wanted to make sure that all of that all worked together so that there was one solid storyline beneath the whole exhibit. So you can kind of do both. And the way that we we were able to tackle that was by kind of having these different areas of the exhibit, right? And each character could serve as a guide in the areas. And it also fits with Fred's line, right? Let's split up and look for, for clues, gang. So... Each character could go to a different room of the mansion, be helping give you clues that, you know, lead to the bigger mystery. And if all you do is go to Velma's area and, um, you know, play the pipe organ and discover, I don't know if I want to give away what's inside, but play the pipe organ and discover a clue that's hidden inside the pipe organ, you get the sense of accomplishment like, I've helped the team. I found something that's going to help solve the mystery. Um, if that's all you do and, and then you go on to another exhibit, you've had a great experience and you've kind of hit those ideas of problem solving and ingenuity and making observations. But if you want to like hold on to that piece of information and see how it connects to everything else in the exhibit, you can do that too. So that was a challenge, but something that was really exciting to try and tackle with this particular um, content in this exhibit. And how do you balance all of that with also including a bit of the history about the show? So that's a, that's a great question. I think part of the, the history of the show came into these elements where we could um, show off objects. Um, as a museum, you know, one of the things that is really great about being a collecting institution and having a collection is that we have these objects which can help tell those stories um, of his, uh, like through history, right? So there's a display of lunchboxes from, a, you know, across different years of Scooby-Doo. Um, and there are you know, little Playmobil toy sets or games or puzzles. And we could kind of sprinkle those in throughout the exhibit and almost like little peekaboo reveals like, oh, you come across something that like lunchboxes in the kitchen and a display case. And it's a little surprising and unexpected, but that helps weave in those ideas of, you know, the history of the show. And we've kind of used objects to help kind of tell that story um, throughout the exhibition. And where did you source those items? So um, some of them, like we mentioned before, came from WB Archives, and those um, objects are only going to be shown here at the Children's Museum. Those are kind of um, part of 
our opening of the exhibit and you know kind of the the kickoff and then other objects um, so we have a whole collections team and uh, the curator on this project her name is Andrea Hughes she sourced a lot of the objects um, by looking at what we had in the collection or kind of looking at what other collectors out there have and kind of finding the right objects that would help us tell that story so I know she got different objects um, from various places online, but then also look to our own collection for inspiration about what, what would help tell that story. And are there any rare or never-before-seen things in the exhibit? Yeah, so I would say one of the like coolest objects that we have on display did come from um, Warner Brothers Archives, and it is the pitchboard for the show. And it's the pitchboard that actually sold Scooby-Doo to the CBS network. So up until that point, they had had some different character concepts. Like at one point, Scooby-Doo was like a white dog that was kind of like a mutt, like a mixed breed. And they had some other um, ideas for what like, you know, Fred or Velma or Daphne or Shaggy would look like. And then at one point, they kind of, you know, changed gears and Scooby became a Great Dane. And the gang, you know, they kind of solidified what they would look like and they put together this pitch board and that's what show, sold the show to the network. And we have that that pitch board, the original pitch board here on display in the exhibit, which I, I think is pretty cool. It, it's a really neat and powerful object to help tell the story of Scooby's history. And it is on display here only at the Children's Museum. So something unique to our um, opening of the exhibit. Absolutely. Um, and so you have the mystery machine from the live action movie, the second live action movie. What was the process like to get the mystery machine to the museum? Oh, I feel like Sarah should have talked about this because she did a lot of work in getting the machine here. So maybe she should jump on and talk to it, talk about it after I share. But I know that there was, you know, a lot of work coordinating with WB Archives, figuring out how we're going to ship it. I know at one point Sarah wanted to offer to drive it across the country, but they didn't quite go for that. <laughs> um, so uh, it just coordination with their their collections team and figuring out how to safely get it from California all the way out here to Indianapolis. It, you know, I know it came on a truck, and then we had to kind of push it in place through the museum. So it it was a months long process. And so because it is such a um you know, rare thing. It's just uh, for people to like see and take pictures of. There's no interactive thing there. Yep, that's right. Yeah, you can take pictures with it. You can see the outside of the mystery machine. I mean, you can kind of from behind it's, you know, we have some barriers to kind of help protect it and keep it safe. But you can kind of peek in and see some of the stuff inside of the machine from outside of the barriers. But yeah, because it is a, a prop um, from the movie and, you know, an artifact that WB is going to keep for a long time. It is uh, just for kind of looking and, and taking pictures with. Unfortunately, you can't get in it. Um, and are there any other screen-used artifacts or any type of art cells or anything besides the pitchboard and stuff in the exhibit? So uh, screen-used, no, but we do have some other um, concept sketches and drawings from some of the first episodes and some of the character concept sketches and then a Scrappy-Doo sketch as well um, alongside some other Scrappy-Doo memor memorabilia. Do you want to talk about the mystery machine, Sarah? <laughs> yeah. Sarah, come talk about the mystery machine. 
We are very fortunate that we have a great partnership with Warner Brothers Archives. Um, we've used them many times to sh um, for other exhibits, and um, so we had the connections there. Um, so the process was quite easy, actually. Um, we reached out to them, um, asking what um, artifacts they had that we could borrow um, to display in the exhibition. And of course, they're like, we have mystery machines. They're like, well, we want the mystery machine then. Um, so. Um, they have actually multiple mystery machines in their archives. I'm not sure if you're aware that they have, um, for the live action movies, they have um, two different paint schemes. One that's like a brighter paint scheme and one that's like a, do a dollar paint scheme, depending on which time of the day um, they film. So at night they use one and during the day they use the other. Um, so we wanted the bright shiny one. Um, so that's the one that we chose um, to bring here. Um, so we worked with them, we did a contract and then we um, shipped it here. And then um, we pushed it into our gallery space. Um, and as um, online, you can actually watch a video of us bringing it into the building. So, and um, the mystery machine that we have is from Scooby-Doo, the live action movie, in 2000, 2000. And then the 2002 um, Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. It, it's really cool. It's really decked out inside with all like the, you know, the, the clue analyzers and flashlights and walkie-talkies. And it's, it's very neat. I think that's all of my questions. Is there anything that you want to add, or Stephanie, is there anything you want to add at all? I, I just want to clarify Stephanie's, um, and, sorry, more, <laughs> um, more ghost noises here. Um, we just need to make sure that people understand that the traveling exhibit that we have on display has the augmented pieces such as the mystery machine and those art cells and the pitchboards, and that does not travel with the exhibition. Venues have the option to augment themselves as well through I'm getting permission through us and Warner Brothers, but those pieces do not travel with the core exhibition. We've tried to layer information and layer clues so that if you visit once, you should have an awesome experience, but you might not find all the little hidden things and details on one visit, especially if, with, if you're with a kid that's like, I'm ready to go to the, you know, the next thing. So you're, you might have to come back and see it multiple times in order to kind of get a picture of everything going on. I think that this is definitely exhib an exhibit where um, you're going to discover something new every time you come and see it. So just an additional question. Um, what was the process like and how did the idea come about to get some of the voice actors in on the exhibit? So as we were developing some of the interactives, we thought that it would be really fun if, you know, who was talking to you in the interactive was the actual character. So like Velma is talking to you and saying, analyze these clues that I found. And you're running away from the ghost and you hear Shaggy telling you, you know, Zoinks, it's a ghost, we have to run away. And so we, we started to think about, well, could we get the voice actors to provide voiceover um, for the interactives to kind of make them more immersive and make you feel like the characters were, were really talking to you? Yeah, so just a point I want to add on to what Stephanie just said is, you know, accessibility is very, very important to us here. So um, for anything, any of our interactives, we always have closed captioning and voiceover. Um, so when it came to, to figuring out, you know, do we do a generic voice um, for the voiceover or do we try to find the actual cast member? Um, hands down, you know, it's, it makes the, the true immersive experience to have those real cast members. Um, so we are very, very fortunate that we had the ability to reach out to their agents and um, get SAG um, contracts um, put together and um, work with them. What was it like to work with them? Are they super great or? 
They are amazing. Um, we are also nervous to hop on a Zoom call with Matthew and Kate. Um, but as soon as the call popped on, they were just so relaxed and fun to work with. Um, Stephanie's a huge Matthew Lillard fan. Um, so she remained very calm. I was very proud of her. Um, but it, it was probably the best like hour um, that we had um, just working with both of them. Um, over the Zoom during the recordings. Yeah, they were so great to work with. And, you know, it was it was really fun to be able to write a piece of content and see the voice actor, like, say the words that you wrote um, and, you know, hear how they deliver the lines. And they were just so great. They were so open to, like, oh, do you like it that way? Or do you want us to – do you want me to try a different way? And, you know, I was totally not expecting them to even be asking for that kind of feedback. So they were yeah. so personable and fun and funny. And it was just such a pleasure to be able to work with both of them. They yeah. were awesome. And they ablived too a little bit of the script, which made it so much better because they know, you know, what Sco um, Sco Shaggy and, you know, Velma would say in real life, in real life, right? Quotes. Yes. Um, so it was so great to watch them ablib and better our scripts. And then also to watch their expressions as they did the voiceovers. It was just so cool to actually see them um, do the expressions that Velma and um, Shaggy would do as they were talking. Yeah. I think that covers everything now. Is there anything else? <laughs> I, I think another fun thing that we haven't really mentioned about the exhibit, um, which maybe Stephanie did not mention on purpose because um, it's, you know, supposed to be a little secret, a little spookiness, um, is that um, one of my favorite components of the exhibition is in the Hall of Portraits. So we developed the family um, for th that owns this mansion. Um, so Stephanie did a really great job um, making a diverse mixed family um, with really fun names, which um, you'll when you come through the exhibition, you'll see how all the names tie to the, the mystery. Um, but my favorite element in the Hall of Portraits is there's a couple portraits that you're looking at and they possibly are looking back at you. Um, and it's so cool to see visitors um, react when they see these special portraits. Yes. I know it's such a hard, it's like, you know, I, I want to give people a sneak peek, but I also want people to be able to find the clues and solve the mystery for themselves. So I don't want to give away too many of them, but yes, the portraits are really fun. And there's also a really fun element in the hall of portraits where you can become the villain and you can spook your family members. So you can trigger some different um, things like ev an evil laugh, um, a ghost projection so there's some fun things that you can do to try to spook your own family members and we we thought that kids would just love that idea of becoming the villain themselves and they totally do kids are just like cracking up as they you know spook mom and dad or spook brother and sister whoever it is um with those fun little ghostly effects well, and, and lastly, I'm going to keep going here. Now I'm all excited. I'm all warmed up. Um, Stephanie kind of mentioned the Ghost Chase Interactive. Um, you know, every Scooby-Doo episode has that iconic Scooby and Shaggy um, ghost chase scene. So, of course, we had to include it in the exhibition. And what better way to include it than to have you be a part of it? Um, so it's really fun to watch visitors um, join Scooby and Shaggy as they're trying to outrun the ghost in the Ghost Chase Interactive. This all sounds amazing. I can't wait to go take another look. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both so much for your time today. Um, yeah, thank you. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming all the way out here. And um, we're so excited that you are here to see the exhibition. Yes, thanks. And it, I hope that you enjoy it later. I can't wait to hear what you think. Um, 
And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to the Children's Museum of Indianapolis and to Sarah Myers and Stephanie Edelman for taking the time to chat with me. For more Scooby content, be sure to follow at UnmaskedSD on Twitter, at UnmaskedSDPodcast on Instagram, or at UnmaskedSDPodcast.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo Podcast. And you can find the Children's Museum of Indianapolis on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or at their website, childrensmuseum.org. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. Thanks for listening, and keep an ear out for the next episode. Scooby-Dooby-Doo!